fine-tuning and tweaking little things here and there. I came in here with uh, a lot of ambition and I went out there and tried to do different things, but over time I've learned my food style and Tavern on Jane's food style. Just home style comfort. You want to feel like you're eating dinner at Grandma's house on a Sunday night every night. Welcome to The Profitable Table, fed by Woolco Foods, the nation's first podcast devoted to the restaurant industry. Now, here's your host, Woolco Foods CEO, Stephen Toberoff. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Profitable Table, fed by Woolco Foods. Today, I am super excited for a lot of reasons. I'm going to have an opportunity today to interview Michael Stewart, who's the owner of Tavern on Jane, and Joshua Labeda, who is the chef. And the reason I'm excited is because, one, I lived on Horatio Street for many years, and Tavern on Jane was one of my favorite restaurants to go to. Two, Woolco Foods was located on Gansevoort Street for many years, so Tavern on Jane was a neighbor. But I'm mostly excited because I think that there's an enormous amount of information and knowledge that's going to be gleaned from this interview so let's just get right into it. Michael and Joshua, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. We're very happy to be here. Thanks, Stephen. Thank you. This is awesome. So, Michael, can you tell me a little bit about when Tavern on Jane started, how long you've been involved, how long you've been there, and, and sort of the background, please? Sure. I moved to New York in 85, and then in 87, I started looking for locations for my first restaurant. I, over the years, had several options come up. They just didn't seem to fit. And then in 1995, I found this location where Tavern on Jane is currently. A friend of mine just happened to speak to someone he met at a bar, and the guy said he was interested in selling his restaurant, and he hooked me up with the owner and after a bit of negotiation and, you know, it, was, it wasn't an easy negotiation, but after negotiation and everything was settled, we decided on a price and we signed a lease in uh, 1995. That's really cool. I moved back to Manhattan from Chicago in 1993. And in 1995, the West Village and the whole meatpacking area was still sort of as we envisioned it as it was initially configured. It was an industrial area and all of that. And things really just, it, you, you got in right before things started to change a little bit. Although even as much as things change, the West Village always keeps its its authenticity. When you bought the place, Michael, did you decide to make any sort of major changes or did you make some tweaks or was it something where you just saw that there was an opportunity there, you kept going, and over time, the restaurant evolved as, as you went along? When I initially opened the place, it was a seafood restaurant, so what we wanted to do was create more of a local tavern feel. So they have a small bar in here, so we, we took the bar out, and we built a new bar. We did some light renovations and doing some painting and removing of wallpaper and other things. The place was meant to look like a New England-style clam broth house or something like that. And so we had to make it more an American style so that it would have the feel of an American tavern. So we did that. We did some renovations in the kitchen. But fortunately for us, we were able to do all these renovations and open within one week. Wow. That's incredible. And you have one of the most beautiful outsides of any restaurant that I've seen. It, it really stands out and it's unique and it, it's beautiful. Joshua, when did you start as the chef at uh, Tavern on Jane? 
I just finished my fifth year here. So 2014, I met Mike through an old boss of mine that who was helping him consult with new menu ideas and changing up the restaurant. And I put it off for about six months, but when I finally came in here, I knew it was the right fit. So Joshua, you know, one of the things I'm interested in, and I, I was interviewing a few weeks ago, the Selka restaurant, Jason and Tom Burchard, and what were the challenges that you felt you had to take on coming into a restaurant that has already sort of been a neighborhood institution for 15 years? So you're coming in as the chef to something that has such an incredible, loyal fan base, if you will. But at the same time, you're at the crossroads of the meatpacking district and you're in New York City and there's all these culinary trends. How do you navigate staying true to the core customers and, and what Tavern on Jane's about while at the same time bringing your own flair and your own creations to the menu? Well, definitely to navigate through this place, I had to do my research. I had to learn a lot about Tavern on Jane and their customers and their fan base before I could really do any tweaks myself. A lot of organization was done, a lot of menu changes, but a good amount of our menu is still the same old Tavern on Jane recipes that have been here since day one. Ones that couldn't be changed and ones that would cause problems if I did. Best turkey burger in New York City, in my opinion. At least back when I have, that was my go-to. Oh, that's still a go-to for a lot of people. That That's definitely still a Tavern on Jane recipe, and the only thing I added was that fantastic cranberry mustard to apply to it. I give you a lot of credit because it's so difficult to execute great meals and to do it consistently. That's sort of the hallmark of any restaurant that's successful. And I think a lot of chefs, when they come into established restaurants, they almost over try or they feel compelled to do something totally different and new to put their name on it. But in a sense, I always like it better when someone comes in and you don't notice the difference. It's just sometimes a subtle change here, a subtle improvement there, so that it's almost like you're enhancing rather than recreating. Would you agree with that? Oh, I totally agree. Exactly what I did. Fine-tuning and tweaking little things here and there. I did do that, exactly what you said. I, I came in here with a lot of ambition and I went out there and tried to do different things, but over time I've learned my food style and Tavern on Jane's food style is just home-style comfort. You want to feel like you're eating dinner at Grandma's house on a Sunday night every night. What's really cool about where Tavern on Jane is located, Michael, and I'm, I'm curious about how you navigate this, is on the one hand, I, I know from when I lived there, and I'm sure it's the same, that it's a phenomenal neighborhood restaurant that people who live in the area uh, love going there. They know what they're going to get when they go there and, and they look forward to it. At the same time, so much has changed around you and there's a whole new influx of people. I mean, the meatpacking districts made enormous changes. The West Village has. How do you balance making sure that you're exactly what the regulars have wanted and look forward to while at the same time reaching out and becoming an attractive option to people who have maybe have never tried there before, because you don't stay in business for 20 years unless you're executing at a very high level. And I was asking other people that question. I'm curious what your thoughts are on that subject. Well, you know, it's it's funny. The restaurant in, in and of itself was kind of kept in a, in a particular way for like 19 years. And then five years ago, I had a friend who was an architect, and he came in, and again, the neighborhood was changing, as you had said. The demographics were changing we were starting to get in a new demographic of younger, you know, millennials that were moving into the neighborhood. And that being said, we had to change the look of the restaurant. So we had a vestibule that was indoors, which we took out. 
we added in high top tables in the front dining room so that everybody is on the same eye level. We also put in leather back seating on the banquettes and high stools with backs to make people more comfortable. But again, in doing this, we were able to create a more open, airy look, also something a little bit more modern, just in the, in the way the seating was done. It didn't take away anything from the original luster or, or the beauty of the restaurant with the tin ceilings and the brick walls. It just enhanced the look so that we would be able to have younger people walk in and say, okay, this is a great place. I'm comfortable here. So, yeah, five years ago we did that. And initially some of the regulars who were older weren't really happy about it because they didn't want to sit in the high-top table. But over time, everybody's been happy. The majority of my seating is still low-tops. But the flow of the restaurant is completely different, and I think that's one of the reasons that I've been able to maintain and and still be here for 24 years. You know, that's such a crucial and important point you make. And, and this podcast, it's getting great reviews from people who are just foodies and love the restaurant industry. But the reason I created it was because I wanted to have a podcast that creates content for people who are either in the business and want to learn from the best on how to be more profitable or be more long-lasting or people who are thinking of opening something. And what you're talking about in terms of innovating the space and making that decision is so crucial because there needs to be constant attention to what we can do to innovate. That goes for any business. But the challenge for you, as you said, was how can you innovate and at the same time not alienate the core customers? That's one of the main challenges that so many restaurants that have a really loyal clientele have to navigate because sometimes they're paralyzed with fear and they don't do anything. And that leads to bad outcomes. Other times they'll execute and they'll execute poorly and that leads to bad outcomes. So it's a very challenging thing. And I, I know you did an exceptional job with it and the way you're describing it. From, from the cuisine standpoint, do you find that the requests that you get are people who are coming in and they're either making slight modifications to their regular dish or things which you have in the menu, or do you ever get suggestions or just ever get any sort of input from the ether, if you will, the outside environment of leading you, Joshua, to say, you know what, I'm going to add this, or maybe we're going to try this for brunch. Where do you get your inspiration to do anything innovative on the menu side of things? A lot these days has to do with, you know, availability of produce and, and other items, that's where I get my a lot of influence. What can I do with this new item? I, I love trying new things and pushing myself to make things I've never made before. My original inspiration to become a chef came from my grandmother. I just cooked with her every day after school growing up, and that's where a lot of my food and recipes come from. My customers now, they have a lot to influence on our menu ideas, and I take requests. I make those dishes for those people all the time. And every day we still get customers coming in, ordering off-menu things, tweaking it the way they want it. And we do that because we're that kind of home-style place. I really like that. Again, I, I think from my vantage point, so much of being a great chef, again, it comes down to execution. And we deal with literally thousands of restaurants. And I'll see people who have the most complicated creations, and it just doesn't work. And then you see people who just authentically stick to what they know and they grow organically, and they grow almost in concert with their customer base, and that almost always works. And I think it requires somebody that has a real high level of execution 
and also a level of humility because I think a lot of chefs want to go in there and again, kind of what I was saying before, they want to differentiate themselves, but in so doing, they can create a lot of problems because when you differentiate, you're making binary choices on flavorings, on dishes, on all kinds of things. I much prefer when I see chefs, you even take something as traditional as a roasted chicken with mashed potatoes or roasted potatoes. It can be done so many different ways. You know what I mean, Joshua? And each one has its own unique signature. And then when that's done right, that can last for 10 years successfully on a menu or longer versus just chasing the hottest trend. And one of the ways that you and I have been reconnecting with each other, Michael, is through social media. And you have a phenomenal Instagram page for Tavern on Jane. And I'm wondering, what ways do you utilize social media? How do you find it to be important? And and sort of what are your objectives in in the way you utilize Instagram and, and other forms of social media? Well, the whole idea is just to keep Tavern on Jane in people's minds. So when they're sitting at home and they're thinking about where they might want to go, they might, you know, look on their Instagram and say, oh, let's go try this place or that place. So I think by doing as many things as you can to show the quality of your food, the beauty of your food, and how creative Josh is. So in taking those things into consideration, it's not as difficult because we have great content. And when you have great content, it makes it easy to be able to be on social media where you're not getting slammed for not having something that looks proper or you're not doing something that people aren't interested in. We try to keep the social media to be a real part of the tavern and to let the tavern shine through, not to try to make the social media the main focus, but to make tavern the main focus and everything that Josh and I do. I totally get that, and I totally agree with you. I think people can tell when a social media post is overly manicured or it's it's been thought about for too long. I think it's great to put stuff out there that's there to convey something. And when I look at your post, and I always appreciate it when you tag us, I get the same vibe. I say, even subconsciously, you can see that there's an authenticity here because there's nothing that's artificial. And I tend to agree with you. I see a lot of restaurants and caterers and hotels utilizing social media. And sometimes it can turn people off, and sometimes it can really enhance engagement. And I think you guys have have done an excellent job with that. As the neighborhood is changing, and as it's changed and as it continues to change, does the changes that have occurred, do those ever serve as inspiration, whether it's for marketing? I know we discussed changing the decor of the restaurant to appeal to a wider base of people. Do you ever find yourself thinking about ways that the changing neighborhood creates marketing opportunities or challenges? Or are you simply saying, look, we're Tavern on Jane, we're going to stick to our knitting, we're going to execute as best we can, and the rest will take care of itself, so to speak? I think if you're not aware of what the neighborhood is and what trends are going on in the neighborhood, then you're just being foolish. I mean, you have to notice on a day-to-day existence of walking through the neighborhood, seeing the new places that are opening up, seeing how they're drawing people, wondering, you know, are the things that you're doing the right things? I mean, you have to be in tune with the neighborhood, which I believe that we really are, because if you don't see what's going on and listen, you're just out of touch. And you just have to be constantly evolving, menu-wise or and otherwise. Tavern's successful, and it's had longevity because of its regular customers. And, you know, we have people that eat here three or four or five times a week, and it's really their kitchen. So being able to offer them enough choices and enough selections that they're able to 
to come in on that frequent a basis and not feel like, you know, they're eating the same thing all the time. Those are things you have to be in touch with too because you have so much that you have to work with. And again, you have to know what other people are doing and what makes them successful because it can help do that for you as well. Studying the neighborhood is a huge part. You know, this is a, like you were saying, it's a changing neighborhood every day. From the weekdays, you get a lot of business crowd walking around, but then the weekends, you have tourists. This, this neighborhood is changing every day with the High Line, uh, the Whitney Museum, and other local things that are popping up and closing down. It, it's, a, it's a real difficult, but really engaging topic to, to deal with. No, Joshua, that's a great point. And I was actually going to ask you a question, which sort of piggybacks on top of this, which is, you know, you're mentioning how you got the inspiration from cooking with your grandmother and that that was, I guess, sort of been a lifelong passion of yours. I, I think people have now come to expect, you know, it, when, when I was younger and stuff, when you would think of a tavern or something of that sort, I'm going back to the 70s, it was almost a quasi hamburger joint. Now I think when people go, whether into a, it's a place that's called a tavern or anywhere else, I think people are much more open-minded to seeing a lot of different types of things on the menus. I'm curious from your perspective, what trend in just the food industry in general do you feel is something that you're inspired by and, and something that you're thinking can last a while and are trying to incorporate into your menu? Is it plant-based? Is it some other trend that you've identified or, or even something from your past? Well, a few years ago, the trend was definitely plant-based, I, I feel, and healthy eating, but now it's gone on to a moderation of what you want to eat. So I'm still getting, I get a lot more customers these days looking for the gluttonous food, the heavy meals, the ones that make them feel good at the end of the night. In good ways, not bad. But this summer, I had a lot to play with different produce, and I got to explore different states and see different farms, and I've been getting a lot of inspiration through that way. And right now, cooking up in the kitchen, we're experimenting with a veggie burger or a plant-based burger, but we don't want to buy something. We want to make something ourselves. I think that's really smart because even though we sell all of the different brands, and I'm not going to mention them, and I think you know people are a little more health-conscious and what have you, and people are plant-based, but I think... The next move on the chessboard, if you will, is when people think plant-based, they're going to want to think something healthy. But I also think there's that binary aspect to it, because at the same time that this plant-based thing and other trends have been going on, and I was blogging about this before, I'm curious to your thought, there's also been this trend that's been going on, which is just ridiculously over-the-top desserts. You know, so you have sort of the black tap milkshakes, which I'm sure you're familiar with, and we have customers like Serendipity that do crazy desserts. But I think people are really in that direction, that when they want to indulge, they want to really indulge. And actually, that leads me to my question. What are your thoughts about that from the dessert side of things? You know what I'm talking about, Joshua, where these sort of over-the-top dessert creations that you're seeing in a lot of places? Customers definitely eat with their eyes these days, and, and they go to places just for those Instagram trends and those pop-up videos, you know, coming through. I love playing with our desserts. We make all our desserts here handmade. What I'm a fan of is taking something simple as a brownie and taking it a couple steps up, keeping it that traditional but also not. You know, we have a couple things I'm tweaking on the new menu additions coming up. You know, everyone's had a churro before, but the way I'm going to do it is going to be unique, and no one's going to see it like that before, and it's going to be very interesting to see what kind of Instagram and influence trend that it gets. You know, here's a question I have also. I remember when Woolco was in the meatpacking district, I would get lunch delivered uh, relatively frequently, 
And I remember to this day, I know it sounds crazy, but I do remember it, that the food was amazing and it came delivered. It tasted the same as in the restaurant. With the Grubhub, Seamless, that whole thing, I assume you still do delivery, right? Of some sort? We don't do deliveries anymore, but we do have a very large takeout fan base. Even better. So that's even to my point. When you're doing stuff for takeout versus dining in, do you feel you ever have to make any adjustments to accommodate the takeout side of things? Because that's been a trend that, that I've been getting some emails about and other people, which is, yes, meal delivery and takeout, I, I view them as the same, is becoming perhaps more common, perhaps not. But to ensure the integrity of the meal, whether it's in takeout or in the restaurant, is a big concern because restaurants are saying, look, we have these magnificent creations. Some of them don't travel well. Some of them do. And it's sort of a challenge to navigate. Is that something you've had to think about or come up against? Uh, we, we definitely work around those issues. I definitely want that burger that you're going to sit down and eat. It's going to taste just as good if you want to sit near your couch and eat it. We package it up in a, in a nice, eco-friendly way with the bun on the side. And make it so when you do get home, you can assemble a nice fresh burger without having a soggy bun or lettuce. Same with the pastas and all our other entrees and even pot pie. We have a big fan base for our chicken pot pies on Thursdays, but for to-go, it's very doable. I just cut it a little differently and put it in the to-go containers. You still get that puff pastry and that nice flaky crust. That's awesome. And believe it or not, Joshua, your idea of putting the bun on the side... There's so many places that are going to be blown away after they hear that and they're going to start doing it because it's such a smart idea and, and it's such a way to, as you say, maintain that quality. Michael, one thing I know from the years I lived there and afterwards that you're very involved in the neighborhood. I know you have that street fair and I know that you're involved. And this was a similar dynamic actually with the Burchards at Veselka where they've been in business there for many years. They're involved in the Greenwich Village Historical Preservation Society. As a business owner in the village... How important or how big a part of your day is your involvement in Tavern on Jane, being involved in the community and the participation you have? I don't want to say community activist, but I want to say a, a community participant, somebody that cares about the neighborhood. How do you balance that with also owning the restaurant? And how do both instruct sort of your day-to-day -day existence in Tavern on Jane? Tavern on Jane, in and of itself, has become a massive part of the community just because there's so many locals and so many regulars that are in here, but those individuals are also part of the Jane Street Block Association, or they're part of Community Board 2, or they are from Cory Booker's office, or they're from any other number of community-based functions. So what we do is, aside from the block party, we do a lot of other community work. The Grove Pharmacy, they do a health and wellness once a month, and they do it at the West Beth Theater, and they do it for seniors there. And they do that once a month. So we donate the wraps and the salad and the food so that these individuals of the day of the, they're doing their health and wellness, it gives them the opportunity to have a fresh meal. And it's become a big hit with the local neighbors and the senior neighborhood. And then we do a lot of work with the schools. And so we do a lot of different things with them, you know, for their annual auctions or spring auctions or anytime they do anything with that. So that keeps us involved with the families. I do a golf tournament every year. And when I do my golf tournament, I raise money for charity. A friend of ours passed away on 9-11. And so I have a lot of the neighborhood that are regulars in the restaurant and then people from other parts that know the restaurant well. So this year we had like 132 golfers. And over a 13-year period, in a small way, we've raised like 400000 wow. for this particular charity. So, again, 
by keeping us involved in the neighborhood and the neighborhood involved with us, it makes it easy to be a part of that. And, and aside from that, I sponsor a few hockey teams that play over at Chelsea Piers and the soccer team down that plays over on Hudson Street from the local school. So, I mean, we just try to be as involved as we can be. So, yeah, day to day, it just depends on the day. There's, there seems like there's always something to be done. In addition to all of the wonderful impact you're having on the community, every business, whether it's restaurant or anything, Nike, you name it, the goal for those that are long-lasting and successful are to create a community around them. And you would think that more restaurants would be focused on that, and yet I'm always surprised how many are not. And you've done such an incredible job doing that. And I, I would encourage my listeners to really think about that because when you're talking about a restaurant that's been successful for 24 years in one of the most sought-after neighborhoods in New York, a lot of different changes, you have to go back to the fundamentals and about putting people first and about, you know, in this world, you know, the more tech people have, the more human engagement they seek when they actually go outside into the world and go to a restaurant, they want to feel a connection and you've done an absolutely spectacular job doing that. And it actually leads me to a question I have for Josh, which is, in talking to you, I can really hear your passion and I, I get a sense of your, your love of what you do. One of the crucial things about any restaurant is the service that the patrons get. I know the food there and I always remember the vibe being phenomenal. But as I said, I, I, live, I don't live in New York anymore. How much time do you spend training or probably not even training, but what are your thoughts in terms of what the staff, whether it's bartenders, whether it's back of the house, whether it's front of the house, what, what is the philosophy that people need to have? Because I've always said a guy can, or, or a couple can go into a restaurant and if they have a phenomenal experience with the people they interact with, even if the meal is not as great as they'd like it to be, they will come back because they felt great about the experience and the way they were treated. Whereas conversely, you can have the best meal in the world and if you have a horrible experience with the humans you're interacting with, you probably won't go back. So how much thought do you give into that aspect of the business? And being in business for 24 years, you've had an enormous amount of data to, to look at. What are your thoughts on that, Joshua? My thoughts are pretty simple. Keeping everyone involved, taking the criticism, taking the compliments, and making sure everybody knows what they're serving. My staff knows my menu through and through. They've tasted every item. Any new specials they taste. I talk with certain servers and every server on how we want things done, how we want to brought out to a customer, all the way down to which side of the plate faces the customer. And if they don't think it's the right idea, I'll take their criticism and we work together on how to fix it and make it better. We have very little turnover here. I mean, in the kitchen, I have two guys that have been with me since day one. And so that's pretty amazing. And then as far as staff, bartenders and waiters, I have a staff that's been here 12, 14, 15, 18 years. And so the great thing about this place is because they get to know the customers and the customers get to know the waiters and the servers and everything else, it becomes, uh, again, part of the community. So people don't want to leave because they do make great money. There's no doubt about that. But aside from that, it's the simplicity of being able to come into a place and being familiar every day. This has been an absolute masterclass on how to run and sustain a successful restaurant. And there's about 20 points that I've gotten out of this interview that I, I really would suggest people, especially if you're thinking of opening a restaurant before you do, 
listen to this interview again and really think about the points that are being made because there are so many executable bits of wisdom that have been discussed here and they're essential. And I would also say that they're almost inviolable. And having a staff with low turnover, we have a similar experience here at Wilco with many of the people. And you just can't replace that because those are people who are just deeply embedded in the culture of your organization. And then they teach it to other people when they come in. I really, really appreciate the time that you guys have given me. This has been an incredible learning experience for me. I've gotten a lot of great ideas, things I'm going to think about. I'm going to end this with one short question for each of you. Michael, if you had to pick, what's your favorite part about owning Tavern on Jane? What what aspect gives you the most pleasure? You know, to have to get up in the morning and come to work, it's a really great place to have to walk into in the morning, especially when you don't have issues or major problems, obviously. But the staff and the customers and the community, you know, they're family. You know, and I don't say that lightly. I mean it in a very serious way. So many of the people that have, I've met over the years, I've gotten so much from them, and I feel like they have gotten something from me by having a place like Tavern on Jane. But the amount of support and friendship and love that I've received from this community, that just makes it worthwhile across the board. So I think that, for me, being able to have been associated with this place has given me more than I could have hoped for. That's awesome. Joshua, quick question for you. What is the single best lesson you've learned or been taught by another chef that's lasted with you throughout your career and that you still draw upon to this day? Hmm, that's, I mean, that also is pretty simple. Um, gratitude and thanks. And just remember that uh, everyone's got their own issues. And if you're working with somebody, they're taking time for you. So that needs to be returned. Take time for everybody. And, you know, just remember that you're all in it together. That's awesome. Michael and Joshua, really, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. For those of you that are listening to the podcast for the first time, please subscribe. We'd love to know your thoughts. You can DM us at Wilco Foods Instagram or our website, www.wilcofoods.com. You can go to our YouTube channel. The restaurant is Tavern on Jane which is on Jane Street in the West Village of New York. If you live in New York and you've never been there, I cannot recommend the experience highly enough. It it is really an iconic New York restaurant. And for those of you who listen who are not in New York City, there's tons of places that you're going to read about. But if you want an authentic New York experience like no other, you have to go to the West Village and you absolutely need to go to Tavern on Jane because you will get a real feel of what it's like to live and be in the West Village. There's nothing like it. So, gentlemen, thank you again for your time, and I really, really enjoyed this. Thank you, Steve. Thank you for having us. Well, that was an incredible interview with Michael and Joshua of Tavern on Jane. I know I said it during the interview, but I'm going to say it again. If you're thinking of opening a restaurant, The information contained in that podcast is invaluable, and I really suggest that you listen to it and utilize it. The book recommendation that I'm going to make right now is something that's a little bit off-subject in a sense, but in a sense it's not off-subject because it relates to execution and success and paying attention to things. And the book I'm going to recommend is a work out of history, and it's called Washington's Crossing by David Hackett Fisher. 
And it's a magnificent book, and it's about the challenges that George Washington faced as he took over responsibility of leading the American troops, the Continentals, as they were called, during the Revolutionary War. And the reason I'm recommending it in conjunction with this episode is because without execution, there's nothing. Uh, You can have the greatest ideas, you can have the greatest motivation, you can have the greatest everything. But if you don't execute, and you don't execute consistently, it's not going to happen. And one of the main lessons I got out of this interview with Tavern on Jane is the level of execution from ownership, from the chef, from every aspect of the restaurant is phenomenal. And, you know, Washington had a similar set of, I wouldn't say similar set of challenges, of course, they were totally different, but the disciplines that were required for him to deal with those challenges came down to consistent execution, listening to people, putting people first, being aware of your surroundings, all of those other things. One of the reasons I like history so much is it's very instructive. I mean, none of us are going to face the challenge that Washington faced or Napoleon or other you know, world leaders, Churchill, you name it. But we can get a lot of information, inspiration, and lessons from them. For some reason, I just want to recommend that book. And this uh, phenomenal interview inspired me to do that. So anyway, thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this podcast. Have an awesome, awesome day, awesome week. And I look forward to hearing from you guys. Love your comments. Would love the book recommendations. Reach out to us at woolcofoods.com. Go to the Profitable Table page. Let me know what you think of this podcast or anything else. And just have a great day. And thank you for listening. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to The Profitable Table, fed by Woolco Foods. Please be sure to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. And to learn more about Woolco Foods or Stephen Toberoff, please visit us at woolcofoods.net.